This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, say hi. Say hi, everyone. Hello. So we have some guests from China, and this particular lady has a question. And that question was, why, why is... Why there is so big difference that in, in maybe in Israel, religion is a very, very important thing, but in China it's not. So why is religion so important in Israel? And, and I asked this nice lady here, I asked her what was important in China. And she said that it's, uh, that what's important in China is, um, yeah, a physically better life. Um, it could be that, that things in Israel I mean, I, I don't know how to answer this exactly like the way I was going, but, but the main point is that, is that existence, like existing as a human being with all, all of your needs, is to us is meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. Um, it, I mean, on a Darwinian level it does, meaning like the animal kingdom, like existence, uh, survival, is very important. For the plant kingdom, survival is very important, and, and for the human kingdom, survival is important. But but it's um, but once you're surviving, so then it leads to more questions of well, what are we surviving for? And why? What am I? What am I doing here? And what? Where did I come from? And you know, very important questions come up that that are answered by Judaism. Very important questions come up that that Judaism answers. And not only Judaism, but I think all the religions of the world are, in some level or another, they're, they're out to answer life's questions and, and to make sense of our world, to make sense of and meaning out of life. Um, but it's true that people don't seem to care much about this when they're not surviving so well. Meaning in populations that aren't doing so hot, you're not going to find religion as high a priority. They may have religion, but it won't be as high a priority as putting food on the table. And, um, but once food's on the table, so then the questions of meaning of life is, you know, paramount. That's, that's really important. Because I want to know why. Why am I doing this? What's the point? Where did we come from? Is there a point to creation? Is there, is there meaning beyond survival? And the answer is that there is, and on a very basic level, there's, a, there's the desire to be good, to be a good person. But how, do you, how can you be a good person? What was called a good person in the times of the Greeks, today you'd be put in jail for m- much of that stuff, whether it be, whether it be pedophilia or whether it be uh, infanticide. The... Um, you know, you'd be put in jail for what was called a good person in those days. So, so you start to realize what it, what it is to be good is relative. And religions tend to uh, define good. They tend to say this is what's good and this is what's not good. But they they generally can't handle details. You know, they they just be a good person. You know, but they keep it real vague on what it is to be a good person, and 
and I understand that because how are you supposed to really know? And and then there's there's Westerners generally, not uh, Christians generally, um, separate church and state in their in the countries where Christianity exists. So being a good person has nothing to do with Christianity. Meaning they may talk about it with platitudes, but it's not enforced by the state. Whatever Christianity would say is good is not going to be enforceable. So therefore, it's it doesn't mean anything really because it has no weight. There's no there's no teeth in what they call good because it's separate from the state. And then the state, how does the state decide what's good? And that that's also becomes quite relative depending on the state you're in. As I mentioned already, the Greek state had things that our states today would consider illegal and be uh, punishable maybe even by death or certainly life imprisonment. And so, and so it all is quite relative. You know, it's, it's really, uh, it's difficult to know what it is to be good. But beyond survival is being good. Now, what's interesting is every human being was born with a conscience. Each one of you has inside of you a, a desire to be good. We all really want to be good. And there's a, there is a natural morality that happens in the world just by the mere pushback. Meaning, let's say you don't believe there's anything called good, but... But, you know, it's kind of kept nebulous. You, know, you have inside of you, there's good and bad, but, but you don't know on any, like, absolute level. You, it's purely relative. So maybe you'd think stealing is okay. Okay, but when you come back home with a broken nose and two black eyes and three broken ribs, so you, suddenly morality kicks in on a natural level because there's pushback for... for for one who breaks their natural values. When you, when you, there's something called natural law, like meaning natural morality. I'm sorry. There's natural morality. And, and that is that the pushback of just your relativist morality bumping into other people's relativist morality. And, and you may not think stealing's bad, but the guy you stole from certainly <laughs> punished you. And now you're, now you're hurting for certain. And, and, Maybe that develops wrong and right is, you know, what, what pushes people over the edge to get violent. Uh, maybe that's morality. And that, for most of history, has kind of been the morality. And uh, that's, that's basically been it. But we have not yet discussed Judaism at all. Yeah, you got a question back there? Yeah, there's some around, you're talking about like there'll be pushback from the society. You have some society where they'll... Don't press anything. They're right. Yeah, you were saying? Yeah, there were some societies where, um, where it was okay to steal. So then, there, you're not going to have a pushback to that. And that doesn't, I mean, that, that won't necessarily make it the right thing to do. Sorry, I lost touch with that. Are you sending messages over here? No, she's taking notes. No, I'm taking notes. I promise. No. I believe you. <laughs> this is perfect. Please I would not think you're just going to sit there and lie. I totally believe you. I just got distracted. Okay. <laughs> Has this been on you guys this whole time? No. No, it's been on no, you. No, no, no. no. She's, she switched the back. Oh, okay. I was just afraid she was touching the... Uh, no, if you, the, if you double tap, it, it off flips. Last I would time. never. If you okay, double okay. tap, it flips. We're on you. For the camera. Are you serious? You can double tap Yeah, so that's why she double tapped on the Yeah, that's how you do it. How'd you know that? I have an iPhone too, remember? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I stole your power card. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. 
All this time we've been trying to hit that little button. Even I can double tap. You know we're live on camera right now. Okay, go ahead. I'm also taking this I'm not texting. You've saying there'd be like natural pushbacks. Like you'll go and steal, someone will beat you up, and then you realize stealing's the wrong thing to do. What about a society where the right thing to do is steal? You're not going to have that natural pushback. Where's your morality? Yeah, that's, that's what I've been saying before, and that was the, that it, it really becomes quite random. So the, so yeah, if there's, do it again. Double click it? I did not click hard enough, maybe? Wow, I learned a new trick. I'm so happy. Yeah. I just want to comment on this young lady's uh, question about Chinese versus Israel, which I'll refer Israel to as Jews. There are a hundred Chinese for every Jewish person in the world. Yeah, so yeah. if Jews did not take the religion seriously as Chinese or not as religion, the Jews would be, become extinct because we don't have the critical mass. That's what would happen. So Jews need to uh, develop our religion and study our religion and stay more religious just to remain a people and remain viable. Hmm. I would never have thought of that, but I, but I, it's for sure, for sure, the an interesting answer as how important it is to us is that, you know, it's it, it's interesting. Israel altogether is kind of interesting because what really does bind us? We have a land that's not our own because it's it, Torah is very clear. It's God's land. Okay, this is God's land. You look at the very first commentary in the Torah; it makes it real clear. This is not our land. And that it, it is God's land, and God is in charge of the land, and he gave it to the seven Canaanite nations, took it from them, gave it to us, took it from us, it became a desert wasteland. Some nomadic Arabs lived here for a long time, and that's, of course, today become the Palestinian claim, as the nomadic Arabs somehow <laughs> translate into the Palestinians, which, uh, which by the way, I, I, I buy their narrative, personally, I... I, I actually have nothing against their narrative at all, but uh, but certainly they were they were hardly a nation. They were just you know I've, I'm a mountain biker. So I, I get to meet Arabs hanging around the mountains, you know, in villages and stuff, and they're uh, they're not they're not a nation. They're, they're just people hanging around areas of the mountains, and which is what took pl that's what was here. If you check out the populations and where the populations were, you'd see there was no such thing as a Palestinian people until they decided they were a Palestinian people, which was well after the state of Israel was formed. And the, um, the but the, those, those people, uh, you know, people who lost their homes or whatever from the, and lost their neighborhoods, you know, there's whole neighborhoods that were taken by the Israelis. So that's a, that's a very legitimate claim. But it's the same claim that the Native American Indians have and the same claim that, that the uh, South Americans have in you know, Rio de Janeiro who had a tribe living there. And, and uh, you know, it's the claim of every country because almost every country in the world has been taken over by people stronger than them. And that's just the, na that's just the name of the game of every country's population. It's just that in this case, it happens to be the Jews. And, uh, and when it's the Jews, you get ready for the double standard. And, and it's good that we have a double standard, that, that the world doesn't want to accept the conquering of the land of Israel 
1948 and 67. It's good that the world doesn't want to accept that because, because back to the, my original point is we're not supposed to be nationalists because it really is not our land. This is not ours. It's God's land. And, and this is why you'll notice we're the only country in the world, we're the only nation in the world that's not from their land. You know, you meet a guy from Spain. He's a Spanish guy. He's from Spain. An Englishman is from England. A, a uh, African is from Africa. And a South African is from South Africa. But a Jew is from Egypt. We're from Egypt. We were born in. We were born in another land. Uh, it's called Goy Miker of Goy, a nation from within a nation, and that's very destabilizing. Not to mention we were born in slavery, ultimately. Transgenerational slavery means you're, you think you're free when you're enslaved. Because if you enslave a free man, that's slavery. But when you enslave people who are, become a nation, that's a slave nation. So they don't know they're free. And a good example of that is, is how long it's taken the Africans, of, uh, the Africans of America, who were enslaved by the Americans emancipated by Abe Lincoln, I don't know how long ago, and uh, their rights fought for by Martin Luther King, whom I'm named after. I was born three days after he was assassinated, and my English name is John Martin, named after Martin Luther King. And the, uh, yes, uh, this rabbi is named after a black minister. That's this is my universal appeal, you know. Like, I'm just born to reach everybody. That's, that's enough of a... Uh, Hook right there, right? So, <laughs> anyway, the. But yet, there, there's still, there's still fighting to break the the stigma in the eyes of others, and their, and to break their own chains. You know, years, 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 decades later, still fighting that, fighting that fight. The Jewish people, we came out of the Holocaust. The Jews came out of the Holocaust stick figures, you know, like, looked e- like Ethiopians with the swollen, you know, the distended belly and the swollen skulls and the toothpick arms and flies everywhere. And like they, they were left for dead until the, the, nation, the allies came and liberated the camps. And, but check out those same people five years later. I mean, once they could get some weight on their bodies and hold down some food, they were like... They're like running the financial district of uh, of Manhattan. They were they were already major lobbyists in the U.S. government. They had they had built a country in Israel out of from scratch, like just boom, they, like they, they to become the the one of the third most powerful the fourth most powerful country in the world behind the U.S., Russia, China is is Israel ultimately to this day, and the second biggest startup country, uh, high-tech startup country in the world, only the U.S., and we really, if, if you play with the numbers, we'd be way bigger than the U.S. if you start looking at the actual swath of land we're talking about and, and, uh, you know, and, and the tiny population we have here. You know, we're way beyond them in high-tech. And, and uh, so there's, uh, it's, it's just incredible. And all of this happened immediately after the war, meaning we were in slave labor torture chambers, in extreme torture and walk out of there and rise straight out. And that's our whole nation is we're born in slavery and rose to greatness because we were taught at Sinai 
right after our slavery. We went 40 days later after the leaving of Egypt. 40 days later, we found out that uh, many things. One is that there's a God. Two is that we have a soul, um, which means that as much as you can beat my body, you can never beat my soul. You know, how many souls were killed in the Holocaust? Zero. Where, how do you kill a soul? You can't kill a soul. It's eternal. And it's beautiful and it's holy and it's clean and it's pure and it's, and it's, uh, it, it, it's sourced in the <laughs> creator himself. So, which means you have a part of the creator himself inside of you. And that's your soul. And so, <laughs> okay, yeah, it was a rough in the Holocaust, but we're, we're standing up now. We're going to build our country or we're going to build our ourselves. We're going to build our Judaism back up because we have something way beyond the physical veneer of, of what we may have gone through at any given time. Judaism's, the meaning that comes from Judaism and the reason why Judaism is so important is because the it's not a meaning that's man-made. This is not a man-made deal here. This is a, it comes from a prophetic experience. So it's, it's a God-given thing. Now, I know every religion in the world claims its source is God. But, I mean, you don't have to go beyond history, meaning the history department of the university, to know that it's not. That there are man-made things. Take any religion in the world, it's man-made. The Hindus got their mysticism. It's mostly a mystical tradition. They got their mysticism right at the time that Abraham sent his six sons eastward. That's why the highest caste of Hindus are called Brahmins, like Abraham, called Brahmins. And check out the scholarship. I'm just going off secular scholarship. that They believe it came from the West, meaning west of the Euphrates, which is Israel, at exactly the time that Abraham sent his children, his six kids that he had with Keturah, which means incense. He married a girl named Incense, had six kids. The Torah lists all his ki- all their kids and the grandkids, lists the names, which all are the names of the Hindu books. The books of Hinduism are the names of these kids. And they took these, and there was, and it says that God gave all he had to Isaac, but to the six children, he gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac eastward to the land of the east. And so if he gave all he had to Isaac, what are the gifts? The answer is the gifts were the mystical tradition. And that's why you'll notice that when a Kabbalist sits with someone who's a master of Hinduism or Buddhism, that they have a lot to talk about. But when you have a rabbi sit with a Christian, they run out of what to talk about within 10 minutes. And when a rabbi sits with a Muslim, they run out to talk about in five minutes. Because there's not much to talk about. But you put a Muslim, put a, a Kabbalistic rabbi with a Hindu mystic, they can talk for years. Literally years. In fact, that was just what's happening with a rabbi in India right now who's already been talking for a few months with people over there. And, they, and he's... Um, yeah, he's got another month coming, apparently, before he comes back. And there, there's tremendous exchange there. In a way, you could say that the, that the Eastern religions are like the internals of Judaism and the Western religions are the externals of Judaism. Because think about it, Christianity started 
right at the end of of the temples, period. So Christianity is a very big takeoff on temple Judaism. They got, uh, it's a centralized prayer, just like we used to have centralized prayer, the temple. They have the church. It's a priesthood. We had a priesthood. So it's a clergy, uh, a clergy uh, uh, setup and how it works. It's also um, uh, funky outfits on the priests, incense going around. They have everything's everything's just the the, the sac- They don't do sacrifices because. They say J.C. was the sacrifice. And, uh, and that's like, they're, they're basically, it's just a takeoff on, it's the externals of Temple Judaism. Without any of the internals, because how would they know anything about the internals? The internals has to do with the Temple service, and there you need the oral law, which Christians have no clue about, the oral law. And then, the, and then what happened 700 years later is Islam took off. When did Islam take off? Well, who were, the, who were the people in the region that were into God? Jews. What were Jews? Jews were synagogue Jews, not temple Jews, synagogue Jews, which was non-centralized, meaning, uh, meaning you pray anywhere you want. And ha- haven't we all seen Muslims praying everywhere and Jews praying everywhere? You know, you see a Jew, he's a little embarrassed to pray anywhere. So they used to have phone booths. So Jews used to go in phone booths and hold the phone and pray you know, in afternoon service. <laughs> You'd see Jews praying in phone booths, pretending they're on a phone call. You know, Muslims aren't afraid at all to pray in front of people, but Jews would get a little embarrassed, so they'd pray in a phone booth. And of course, uh, there's the famous story of the while he's praying, is some jerk is banging on the glass because there, there were like these little glass boxes. It's called phone booths. Do you remember those? <laughs> phone booth. And the um, anyway, there was the some jerks banging on the door the whole time. So the Jew's like trying to pray, you know, and he's banging, he's praying. And finally opens the door, he finishes his prayers, backs out, hangs up the phone, <laughs> opens the door, and who was it? It was the phone repair service. He said, this phone hasn't worked in three weeks. You'll tell me after. But I have heard it, yeah. So the, um, anyway, so Islam, they, they pray, it's non-centralized prayer. There's no priesthood or clergy. Everyone's a practitioner. It's, uh, it's a multi, uh, oh, also everyone's a practitioner, meaning uh, everyone's got these daily prayers they're doing. And it's, uh, and they have mosques like synagogues, place you can go congregate if you want. So, so Christianity is the takeoff on Temple Judaism, and Islam is the takeoff on Synagogue Judaism. But the actual inner guts of the Judaism is the gifts that Abraham gave those six kids, um, and he obviously gave them to Isaac because we have all those traditions as well. And that's why it's interesting to speak to Easterners, speaking to people of Eastern tradition. That's interesting. And you should know, by the way, even though the Eastern people, from, the people from India and other Far East countries and Southeast Asia they, that are into these things, um, that are like, for example, Bali is a Hindu country there. When all these countries, you know, we consider them steeped in idolatry. And the reason they're steeped in idolatry is because there's the, they're in the metaphysical world, you know, this is called the physical world, like this stuff is physical, but it's being beamed down from another realm, which is a 
really complex realm called the metaphysical. And in the metaphysical world, there are... Just turning off the backlight. In the metaphysical realm, there are um, entities. Entities. And those entities have very specific addresses, and they're, and they're in charge of things, those entities. Meaning even the, the, the black in my sweater... First of all, the sweater itself has entities that are creating the sweater. But the black color, the you know, this was dyed wool, and even the dye is has entities that are in charge of black. There's entities in charge of brown, blue, orange, red, and everything else. These are all entities. And the, the whole metaphysical world is filled with those entities. And the gifts that Abraham's kids gave uh, the East was all the all the science behind those entities. It was all the real details, the actual precise details. And, and what, what happened was, well, they, those entities seem to have power if you are not from a Torah background. I Meaning we're from a Torah background. So like, uh, let's say, uh, I don't know, who, anyone here willing to get picked on? <laughs> I'll pick on Nati back there. That's Nazis from Mexico, okay? Guatemala, Guatemala sorry. So, uh, same thing. <laughs> I just took these New York businessmen who, like, have you know, a lot of Mexicans working for them in New York. So we, we, I took them to Costa Rica. Costa Ricans are not Mexicans, not even a little. They're a very proud Central American country. And anyway, but they, the businessmen couldn't, they kept say, by accident saying, like, you know, that, 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 you know, he was talking to this Mexican guy, and I'm like, we haven't met any Mexican guys here. <laughs> He's like, oh, Costa Rican. It's so U.S. to consider anyone who speaks Spanish Mexican. Uh, <laughs> let, me meet him, let me meet a guy from Chile and ask him if he knows how to make burritos or something. <laughs> um... Yeah, so nothing. If I had the ability to introduce you to those entities and you saw some of those entities to the point where your body went into convulsions and you started throwing up because you just weren't ready to deal with that, you'd freak out totally. And then when we brought you back from having met that entity, would you say you met God or you met an entity that God has in place? He's put it in place. Right, because you're from the Sinic, you're from the Sinitic tradition, you're from the Sinai people, and the people who experience Sinai aren't going to confuse this thing. You understand? We just wouldn't confuse it. Um, someone, if you, uh, what's your name? Jason. What? Jason. Jason. Jason what, and what's your Chinese name? Uh, Liang Chungche. Liang Chungche. <laughs> so Liang Chungche, if you saw this entity that blew you away entirely in its power to the point where you're like shaking and you're like throwing up your body's just like and then I brought you back would you say you met God yeah. <laughs> for sure for sure he's smiling and nodding you met God and now you understand Hinduism that's all and you know what how can you blame them <laughs> They didn't have a prophetic experience at Sinai. It's not in their tradition. And our guests here from China didn't... Your nation, the Chinese nation, was not at Mount Sinai. It was, the Jewish people left Egypt. 
went to this mountain and had this insane, you know, THX surround sound Omnimax 3D LSD blow away moment that's never happened in the history of the world except for then. Never happened before, never happened after. You could even say that the three biggest moments in all of creation are creation, like the actual creation of the world. Um, apparently, there's going to be an end to it all. There's like an end game, which in Judaism says we'll be at 6,000 years. Right now we're at 5779, so it's 221 years from now, which is like so close, but too far. And uh, <laughs> meaning for us, we can only discuss it, but I can imagine our great, great, great grandkids are going to be, you know. It's within, it's within the 200 years. Yeah. So anyway, the, uh, but there, so there's a beginning, there's an end. And by the way, most traditions in the world believe in an end game. Like the, almost every tradition says there's going to be some kind of it. So what's the middle? The middle is the revelation at Mount Sinai. Now, if you think it's ethnocentric that only the Jews got to have that revelation, because it sounds a little ethnocentric for us to walk around and say, yeah, we had this revelation, you didn't. And for us to think there's Jews and Gentiles. I mean, it's the funniest thing that we even use the term Gentiles. We believe there's Jews and Gentiles. Jews were at Sinai, Gentiles weren't. But it's a funny thing to say because, for example, um, uh, who did I, oh, I was just uh, I was just teaching some Japanese businessmen yesterday, and they didn't know the term Gentile, and they thought it was really funny that we think there's Jews and Gentiles because we make up 14 million people, whereas the Gentiles make up between seven and eight billion people. So. You know, it'd be like, it'd be like a little, they found a little village on an island somewhere and they meet, you meet these little islanders there and they're like, yeah, there's us and then there's Gentiles. <laughs> You're like, what are you people, crazy? Like, you know, the, the margin of error, this, and when they take the census in China, when they count the amount of Chinese people in the world, the margin of error is like 80 million. And the, you know how many Jews there are in the world? You know how many Jews there are in the world? How many would you guess? How many? How many Jews would you say? Or do you already know? If you, oh, you already know. Did you know, Elsa? Did you know how many Jews there were? What would you have guessed? How many Jews? If there's seven billion people, how many Jews would you have guessed, Jason? I was recently in a sports bar and. I was asking everybody in the sports bar once I had had too many beers. And it was in, I was in Seattle in the airport and they had a sports bar in the business lounge. So I was asking everybody that the, the least number that someone guessed was a billion. It was a billion. Everyone figured that, you know, it's got to be at least a billion Jews. You know, if you think of our representation on the world stage... You know, it should be commensurate with our population. You'd think it would be anyway, but it's not. It's back on. So. Do you want it to the other side or to the Anyway, the. Wait, wait, wait. One second. I'm, I'm, this, I'm still answering your question. This is the longest answer to one question of why is religion important in Israel. Where was I at? 
Revelation. Anyway, the bottom line is the bottom line is that is that we're going with a a revealed experience that was revealed by the Creator Himself. So, whether we think religion is important or not, it, it is because if the Creator of the universe gave the law to of how what is called good. Remember what we said before. You can survive, but once you're surviving, you have a question of like, well, what would it be to be good? Because every person's built with a moral voice in their head. And so now that I know I want to be good, well, how can I be good? So, And that's up to a lot of debate, what's called good. But Judaism doesn't offer a lot of debate there because, because the Torah gives us what's called good. And that's from the actual maker of the, of the system. You know, what's called good comes from the actual creator of the creation. We know that because we had a prophetic experience at Sinai where this, what's called good, was given. It's called the Torah. And the Torah is what's called good. Now, I know you get all these intellectuals on the dark web who, like, love to poke at the Torah and say, well, that's no... That's no source of morality. It's got slavery there and, and death penalties for, for uh, homosexuality. And like, like, that certainly can't be called the, that can't be the criteria. They, they, they'll say this all the time. And these are smart people. These are smart people saying this. You know, you got like your Sam Harris types saying this. And then sadly, you know, Ben... Uh, and Shapiro, like, who, thank God, goes in a keep a full-time, which is, I think, amazing. Like, that's so cool. He goes in keep a full-time, but I think he spent more time in study of politics and less time in yeshiva. But he doesn't know how to answer these questions either. And so our only chance of a spokesman on the intellectual dark web is Ben Shapiro, which is not going so hot. And then there's, of course, Jordan Peterson, who's like, <laughs> doesn't know his ass from his elbow when it comes to, to Torah, but, but loves commenting on it. And I have, to, I have to tell you, I love his commentaries on it. I love them, because when a genius puts his mind to something that he believes is important, he at least believes the Bible's important. When a genius puts his mind to it, and he's, most geniuses put their mind to it, they're there to destroy it, but he's actually there to t- show us how it, what difference it's made in the world. And So I enjoy that very much, but, but the... Um, but again, he doesn't know what in the world he's talking about when it comes to that. And the funniest thing is that you put all these guys, put Sam Harris, Ben Shapiro, Richard Dawkins, uh, Jordan Peterson, and all the other intellectuals on the web today. You put them in front of the greatest rabbi in Israel. First of all, the greatest rabbi in Israel would be too busy to meet with them. You'd, it'd be easier to get onto the Joe Rogan show than to meet with with one of these rabbis who's like, you know, they're just busy. You know, they're like the whole entire nation is being held in suspense by them on what they're going to be dealing with in, in the very important decision that need to get made for our nation. And they wouldn't give them the time of day. Now, let's just say the rabbis did give them the time of day. They said, you know what? We're going to sit with the intellectual dark web uh, stars, you know, we're going to have Rav Chaim Kamnevsky sit with the dark web stars. Except we got another problem now. Let's just say they all spoke Hebrew. 
or they all spoke English, which would be Jaime Kanievsky's job to learn English. But let's just say they all spoke the same language. What's the other issue? They have zero context to have an intellectual discussion with him. They would have to study Torah for, I guess, with brains like theirs, they would probably need 10 years of Torah before they can have an actual mature conversation with him. I mean, they, you can't even have the conversation. And these guys today consider themselves in charge of these subjects, which is an embarrassment. And I tell you, I love watching them. I'm crazy about the intellectual dark web. But as soon as the word Bible comes out, here goes another botched job by someone who the whole world's listening to and doesn't know doesn't know nothing. That's clue means nothing. Doesn't know anything about how to handle this subject. So, of course, slavery, oh, the Torah mentioned slavery, so obviously the Torah is wrong, and, and death penalties, <coughs> etc. Stoning. Like, people get stoned to death. You know, but, but, like, our Torah comes with oral tradition. You can't read it for, at face value. Do you think our Torah thinks slavery is good? Not at all. And what is it? what are all the laws around slavery in the Torah? They're how to treat a slave if you wind up with one. And if you'd be willing to free him, that'd be even better. But you can't force a man who, who owns the handiwork of another man in a world of slave trade in those days. You can't force him to free a slave. He's bought him for 100,000 bucks, you know, and, and go tell him to free him. <laughs> no, thank you. I'll be happy to free him. Hand me a hundred thousand bucks. You free him, Mister mm-hmm. Mister uh, Freedom Fighter. You know the uh, the he's it was part of the trade in those days. I mean, they work a lot better than horses, man. People are amazing workers. They can do great, great, great things. And in the days where you could own a human being, which we believe is bad, but in the days where people did own human beings, you can't just tell somebody he's got to free a slave. But you know what? The Torah anyway makes you free the slaves on the 50th year. So meaning if someone bought a slave, he only pays whatever years are left. So let's say someone bought a slave on the 40th year. He's not going to pay what he'd pay on the 30th year because he's only getting half the time. Because on the 50th year, he must set him free. Judaism is about freedom. It's not about slavery. And the whole point of coming out of Egypt is leaving slavery. And when it comes to death penalties, well, then you need more oral law. Because if you want to say that death penalties are violent, yes, they're violent. What are they set up for? Why does the Torah keep mentioning death for, for example, desecrating the Sabbath is a death penalty? Why? No one gets a death penalty for breaking the Sabbath. For desecrating Shabbos and a death penalty? But the Torah says there is. Yeah, but we have an oral tradition. The written law does not qualify itself. It requires oral tradition. And one of the best examples, in case, you're, in case you just think I'm making that up, Best example is that every single commandment in there is not explained. Not one of them. Not one of them. We have, the Torah didn't tell you. We have to wear these black boxes. The pair I wore this morning cost 1900 bucks. All the details involved in there, but not one of them is described in the Torah. What am I spending $1,900 for to wear black boxes? When the Torah itself doesn't define it. Well, the answer is that the oral tradition does, and I'm gonna, I bet my 1900 bucks that... That, they, that, that our rabbis got it right when they explain what they are. I'm wearing this cosmic dental floss here. Yeah, I'm wearing the sitzes. If, if, one of these, if one of these got cut off my garment 
And so now I have a four-corner garment with three instead of four. Yeah, I'm taking it off because I'm not going to walk. I'm not moving until this thing is off of me because we don't. Because the Torah says if you're going to walk in a four-corner garment, as people used to go in wraps in the old days, the uh, you go with you go with you have to put fringes. But the Torah just says put fringes on your four-corner garment. It doesn't say what. It doesn't say eight strings. It doesn't say five knots. It doesn't say all these little Kabbalistic wraps over here. These little detailed things. Doesn't say anything about it. Doesn't say anything about how to keep Shabbos. So the same Torah that says you get killed for desecrating Shabbos didn't say how to keep Shabbos. Doesn't say anything. Nothing. Just says don't do malacha and then goes on to not describe what the word malacha means. So it has to be that the entire written Torah, you can't, the entire written book of the Torah cannot be discussed by anyone who doesn't understand the oral Torah. And just to go one more step on death penalties, if you open up the tractate called Sanhedrin, which goes through the court system, explains how you set up a court system, it turns out that it's impossible to meet out a death penalty. You can't even do it if you wanted to. You can't meet it out. Every, everywhere you turn, we will, dis- we will dismiss the case. We don't kill people. For that. Another interesting thing, we don't have jails. Israel didn't have jails. They, uh, when someone did something wrong, they were sent to a Levitical city. And they went and hung out with the holiest people. You don't put a bunch of creeps in the same place. All that does is add creepiness to your country. If you want to reform a person, you put them with the, with the holiest scholarliest people, which was the, the Kohanim. So the priesthood had cities, and that's where people went if they were in trouble. So then you may ask, well, why is there a death penalty in the Torah if there's no death penalty ever meted out? If no one ever gets the death penalty, so what's it doing in the Torah? Why, why do we have a death penalty in the Torah? And the answer is to let you know where God means it. That's where God means it. Meaning it'd be better you weren't born than to desecrate Shabbos. What? I mean, that's kind of extreme. Well, you mean like me texting on Shabbos is such a big deal, you know? Like I shouldn't have been born? And the Torah says, yeah, you shouldn't have been born. Be better, you're better off dead. Better off dead than breaking Shabbos. That's weird, Rabbi. That sounds a little extreme. And the answer is, it's not extreme. It's we have no idea what the Shabbos is. God's trying to tell us, like, if you had any idea what Shabbos was, you would wish you'd never been born if you didn't feel strong enough to, to keep it. Something about testifying that this world was created and not just on its own, but actually a created, it's a created world. That we testify that God created the world by, just like God refrained from creating new things on Shabbos, we don't create new things on Shabbos. If it's off, keep it off. If it's on, keep it on. No new things. If it's raw, keep it raw. Don't cook it on Shabbos. Keep things as they are one day a week. And that testifies that God created the world. And when God adds death penalty to that, all he's saying is that this is the point. 
The fact that you can eat, drink, and somehow pay your bills is not the point. That's not the point of life. You know, and my apologies to the, uh, you know, <laughs> over a billion people in China who think that's the point of life. But it is not the point of life. And it's better to die than live that way. Because, not, no offense, obviously, everyone in China should be well, but, they, but, but, but the Torah says it's better to die than live with that alone. Because there's got to be something meaningful for our creation other than just being able to feed yourself or procreate, which is survival, feeding, and reproduction. It's not that exciting that you can reproduce. Go to the zoo. Check out the chimpanzees. They're doing wonderfully. Okay? Bravo. You could have a child. You know, like, every species out there procreates. Like, yeah, you didn't. That should not be the most meaningful thing that ever happened to you. And that's a little being tough on the girls here because women, you know, can often be so linked to their fertility that it, it becomes more meaningful than life itself. But, uh, but that's, again, it's, this is what the message of Torah is, is that you've got to have more meaning to life than the fact that you can procreate. Because just because you procreated means nothing. What means something is if your kids keep Torah. That means something. That you can create another generation of people who are connected to reality. That's meaningful. That you can create another generation is anatomy. It's biology. It's not meaningful. It's science. Science isn't meaningful in and of itself. So there's something about our testifying that God created the world is so beyond our comprehension. And how do we know it's so beyond our comprehension in its importance? I'm talking about its importance. That its importance, our testifying that God created the world is so beyond our knowledge in its importance. How do we know that? How do we know that it's more important, way beyond our comprehension, that God created the world? And rested on the seventh day. Why is that? How do we know that's way beyond our comprehension? I already gave the answer about six times. Yeah. Because we don't understand why we the death penalty. Yeah, because it comes with a death penalty. Which you could never, as I said before, you can never meet it out. There would never be a death penalty. We would never allow for it. The way our laws work, you could never give a death penalty for it. So why is there a death penalty? To let you know that it's that, that all that stuff you don't understand about it is there. And by the way, you can learn it. It's amazing stuff. I mean, there's really some fabulous stuff that would make you literally never, ever, ever even, even have a test on whether to text on Shabbos. Like, it's, it's not that far from you to learn this stuff. There's stuff you can learn in a matter of weeks that you'd never dream of breaking Shabbos Except in an, you know, an absolute emergency or it's life and death or some other reason you're allowed to drive to a hospital or something. But like, when I, when I meet people who are in, feel that test of Shabbos, like keeping Shabbos or not keeping Shabbos, 
it's, I'm just meeting someone who just never studied. They just don't know. They don't realize. But it's enough for us to know if it came with a death penalty. That that's not to scare you. It's just to let you know that there's depths of understanding that you're missing. And if you're still having a test about anything in Judaism, it's just a lack of knowledge. It's not. It's not because you're supposed to spend your life struggling over these things. You're not supposed to struggle over the things. You're supposed to actually know the Torah. It's your birthright to know the Torah. They think your birthright's to travel around Israel with a bunch of, you know, uh, you know, young libido crazy kids. The birthright, the birthright is the knowledge of the Torah. Is is the birthright of the Jewish people. Shalom, everybody. Thank you for coming once again. Sorry if I was rough. Shalom. You can press finish. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.